0: This is from In Blackwater Woods by Mary Oliver. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. You're listening to our episode about endings today. You came across this poem while you were researching the podcast. Yes, because I I knew that our topic was going to be endings. We were talking about so many ways that we could take this episode. And I was like, okay, what are my favorite poems about this kind of topic, about endings generally? And a lot of them happen to be about the seasons or nature. And so I wanted to do some kind of like pastoral or nature-based poem to kind of reflect that. One thing that I do think about with endings is always the seasons. And we're in our fall-winter era right now in the Midwest, so that's always been quite a delight.
1: Yeah, I like starting this episode about endings, like beginning it with endings. Yes. Beginning it with a poem about endings, um...
0: Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Did she fart on you? <laughs> I deserve it. <laughs> no, you don't! <laughs> As a fart she's. My so... cat just farted on Molly, <laughs> so she might have to go to jail for that.
2: <laughs> Molly's. Might have to go wait, to the wait, hospital. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. She, she's fine.
1: She's needing very much attention. No offense. I know. So, kind of in line with the seasonal aspect of your poem, for this episode, there's a very particular ending anecdote that I have, which is shortly after high school, I spent a lot of time riding my bike on this trail in my hometown, and you know I had like my two besties that I would always ride my bike with. It's kind of just like a straight path. There's not a lot of unexpected twists and turns, and it starts out in this sort of residential area, and it goes through you know, like more neighborhoods and it ends kind of next to the highway-ish, like on the edge of town. And it was a very humid, hot summer. And we were riding our bikes. And it was just, I don't know, so like coming of age movie feeling to be exhilarated on my bike and sweating. And I remember there was this one particular bike ride where my two friends were in front of me. And I was struck with this unbelievable feeling of knowing that this would be the last time we would be close with each other. It wasn't really sad. It wasn't even bittersweet. Like, I think I was just so happy about life. And I remember shouting to them as they were biking ahead of me. Everything's about to change, I think is the phrase I used. My friends, similar to me, weren't upset by this. They kind of just turned around and they were like, yeah, you're right. That's That's true. Everything's going to change. And we just kept riding our bikes and laughing. That moment has always stuck with me because I think so often... Post any, like, major phase of your life, you get upset about the fact that it's going to change. But, like, I knew I was going to be okay, even though at that point in my life I was so deeply unhappy about so many things. We're not close anymore, but I still love them so dearly because of that connection that we had.
2: Gabe, that is reminding me of a very similar experience I have had with some old friends who I'm no longer close with. We used to spend a lot of time at this fishing lake a little bit outside of town. My friend was like super rich and her dad had a sailboat so he would take us out sailing. <laughs> um and we had fun on the lake. Like it was girly high school fun. We would just like go and lay in the sun and we'd sneak out there too and like drink and get really rowdy. Mm-hmm. And that was all throughout high school. But then once we went to college, you know, we stayed friends but we could feel each other growing apart. And we went out there together after a huge rainstorm at the end of the summer, so it was really muggy. and the lake was flooded. All these areas in this marina that were once so familiar to us were now like partially or fully submerged. And there were uh, so many zebra mussels everywhere, so like if you get in the water, you try to wade through, like your feet and your hands will get all cut up. I was standing on the dock, and I thought to myself the same thing. Like, I'll never come back here again. This is the last time I'll be here. Whether or not it was because, you know, there was a shift in my life or, like, a shift in the environment, I definitely knew. And I haven't been back. That's emotional. Are
1: yeah. i that we both had those experiences. I mean, I think it's a common age to have that feeling. Because mm-hmm. some people maybe can't let go of the fact that their life is about to change. And they're just like, you know, we're still going to be friends. I'm still going to date my high school boyfriend in college. Like, even though we're going to different schools. Uh, yes, you know, I said that, yeah. that
2: twice. <laughs> <laughs> You're
1: crazy. <laughs> but yeah, I think I would imagine that most people have those experiences of coming to terms with the fact that your life is going to change. Mm-hmm. And it's usually such a private moment, like mm-hmm. we both yeah. described it.
0: It's very internal. Because mm-hmm. I remember having like a similar... I suppose like this is less chill. So it was more of like a freak out where college was ending and I was very grateful to have had like a nice undergrad experience. I think I had a blast in college and I was just so certain. I was like, you know, if you don't peak in high school, you're definitely going to peak in college. So it's ending now and it's like so over for me. I'm going to go to medical school and become fuddy-duddy. Nothing is ever going to be fun again. All of these thoughts were kind of like miring in my mind and and bogging me down and everything and yet when the time finally came and this wasn't like a concrete moment or anything i just remember at one point i had acclimated to med school and i woke up and i was like wow my life is still very very fun that ending was almost so slow as to not have even disrupted my peace or my equilibrium even though in the moment i was like this impending doom that's coming Mm. is going to come and blow up my life and ruin everything but in reality, it was like this quick ripple, disruptive, but still gentle enough that I was able to just adjust and move on.
2: Or maybe it wasn't a gentle ripple. Maybe you just like, maybe I handled wave. that shit. Yeah. yeah, maybe you actually just handled that. Yeah, that could be it. And you're still so much fun.
0: Yeah.
2: I can't imagine you being fuddy-duddy. <laughs> <laughs> also, I love
1: that word. I
0: love that word. Well, I just, I was like, so certain. I was like, I'm gonna fall off. And I express this to my friends all the time. I'm like, I'm going to flop. I'm about to fall off. I'm in my flop era. So that is a very personal, I think, anxiety that I have. Imagine that the I...
2: headlines. Yeah, I know. A.A. Kaleek falls off. A.A. Kaleek flop. and all caps. I mean, yeah.
1: I don't know. I think I've had moments like that too where I did not peak at all in high school. I had a very rough time in high school. So anytime I started to feel good about my life after high school... I felt threatened. I was like, okay, well, I'm about to spectacularly fail. Mm -hmm. The empire of my happiness is about to be overthrown. I've had many moments in my life that were very intense and, I guess, felt like finales and Mm -hmm. made me wish they were finales, so Mm -hmm. to speak. So, I don't know. I mean, it's all, if we're talking about, like, riding the crest of the wave, the size of the wave is, like, kind of, I don't know. It's all relative, right?
0: Right. Yeah. right. Like it, what
1: constitutes an end. It also
0: depends, I think, at like what stage of your life you're at and what tools you have. The size of the wave may seem so much more unmanageable just because you haven't ridden that many waves yet. And then there comes mm-hmm. a point in your life where you're like, damn, I'm cowabungaing this shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm a surfer.
2: Surfing that it's so over
1: wave. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then
0: you come back onto it, <laughs> we are so back beach. Yeah. That
2: me really applies well. To this yeah. endeavor of ours. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite like, literally a way. Literally. <laughs>
0: yeah. It sucks that that's associated with the business cycle to some extent, because I really love the association with like math, like sine waves and Wait,
2: I actually was getting deep into like British bureaucratical philosophy. Nice. What? Before this episode. <laughs> we went so many different
0: directions <laughs> for this episode. It's actually crazy. Like when I was going through the research that we were doing in the doc. I was like, how did all three (laughs) of us hit completely different realms of philosophy for this? Yes, actually. But then the listeners are at home
2: like, yeah, we're not surprised. Yeah. Hey, listeners at home, I want to remind you that you're listening to episode six? Yeah. Devil's number.
0: Oh my gosh. I love him. (laughs) I'm one of your hosts, Aruj.
1: I'm Gabe. And I'm Molly. Today we're going to be talking about endings broadly which i know seems kind of nebulous and vague but um yeah we'll be, we'll be talking about endings both in our own lives and media literature movies etc the ways in which these things intertwine so it's not going to be as much of a lol <laughs> episode as
0: yeah. last. we will not
1: be ishbowling i know
0: <laughs> We're, we've departed Ijbolandia. Uh,
1: in um. fact i i was tearing up like, every time I did research for this episode, yeah. it's a
2: very personal one, so... It is, yeah. yeah. This one has me feeling deeply. Part of that is our reasoning behind ch- doing this episode now. if mm-hmm. um, you're not. The pod is not ending. But... Um, there, Unless this episode flops. Yeah, so... <laughs> in which case, we will be. So like and subscribe. <laughs> like and subscribe and tell your friends. <laughs> the fate of the pod depends upon it. But no, it's like we picked it because it's the end of the year... I moved out of the state. I'm very lucky to be back
0: on holiday. And we're going to keep recording. Yeah. I know a couple of people have asked that and that yeah. know us in our personal lives. Um, we our, will... adoring <laughs> our adoring fans. Our adoring fans. But no, we will keep recording. Whether we end up doing like a Zoom situation or uh, we see how often we can do these like in-person gatherings for our episodes. We'll just keep doing a combination of both and, and seeing where that takes us. So welcome to the end. At the beginning of the end, let's talk a little bit about why we chose this episode and why we care about endings, you know, at all. Like Gabe said earlier, this is a very nebulous topic, and you know, it's a lot easier to talk about something established and less niche so that you can go out and get that research and give a really good structured overview of things and then jump into analysis. So, this one's gonna be a little bit more applying structure on top of something that can be a little hard to grasp, but We hope that you enjoy it regardless. And this topic is especially important to me because I've always been raised in a tradition where you do think a lot about ending, especially in the context of death and dying. And while I know in a lot of cultures that's pretty morbid, I never felt that way growing up. Like I knew that it was morbid in the sense that to be thinking about death, but I didn't think that it was morbid in a way that was like the connotations that go along with that word. I think an awareness of endings really enables you to develop a detachment and I think that can be a really, really effective detachment. But detachment has always been a very important concept to me and I think those both go hand in hand. So one thing that can make an ending very distressing, even though we know that endings are inevitable and continual in our lives, is feeling deeply attached to the outcome and the way that it shakes out and that can always be a source of trouble for us. And I've been there many times myself, but the more I can embrace a healthy detachment, I feel like I'm more at peace. And I have an interest in palliative care and medicine. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's it's not hospice, which is where a lot of patients go when there's not really a ton of medical treatments left for their disease. But it is when you decide, you know, the advantages of chemotherapy, for example, are no longer outweighing the disadvantages, and it's just making a sick person sicker and maybe we can move towards palliation, which I think literally means uh, pain control. So that has been directly influenced, right, by my feeling that there is a natural end to your life, you know, and that comes at different points for everybody and and it can affect the people around us in many different ways. Thinking about it, looking at it, and not flinching away from the idea can be so useful for you in living your day-to-day life especially on the pod when we talk about what Gabe's mom says, which is like living a life worth dying from. I think the very first step to be able to do that is to understand and know and sit with the possibility of death. And not even the possibility of it, but the inevitability of it.
1: (laughs) It's kind of hard to talk about endings without talking about death, and I'm going to get more into that later. But Maybe one of the first times I really became aware of how important it is to care for an ending was quite early on in life. My uh, my grandpa's mom had Alzheimer's, and some of my earliest memories are actually of hanging out with my mom as she was her caretaker. And like we had, you know, nurses who were coming in and helping. Um I think there was some hospice going on. And it was like on a literary level it's interesting that as I was a child and growing up, I was spending so much time with somebody who was, you know, in quote-unquote a decline. And I don't mean that in a negative way of, like, her losing things, but in the end of her life. um,
0: And and, and at end of life, you often lose things in the order that a baby gains them. Yeah. Um, So there is a particular, like, poignancy to that, even as it is quite sad.
1: One of the things I remember us doing a lot was we would draw in newspapers together and... It's really hard not to just, like, transpose some sort of symbolic analysis onto this. (laughs) Transpose, transpose. There was just something very fascinating about, like, taking a newspaper and the two of us doodling on it. And so all the words are, like, rendered useless, like, as she's losing her grasp on language and as I'm developing mine, we're able to connect on this more abstract playing field learning how to cope with her passing and the imminence of her passing was a really important experience in my understanding and relationship with endings
2: yeah it's so interesting you bring up that you start to lose things in the reverse order that you gain them as a child i haven't had a lot of like up close and personal experience with death in my life i had a lot of tangential experience but but nothing so so personal but I had someone explain to me um after they watched their father in law die that um and they and they, they watched their father in law die right after they had had a baby, and they explained to me that just as there are stages of pregnancy and birth, there are stages of death, and that like kind of busted that concept open for me like and not only are there stages of death there are stages of death in in any transition in your life or any kind of end or loss in your life whether it's that moment when like you or I Gabe realize oh I'm about to lose what I'm experiencing right now and it's just that acceptance or it's something you know more like a post-secondary freak out existential crisis (laughs) like um I'm familiar with both It's good to think about what goes into an ending and how it makes us feel. Yeah. It could be very tempting to
1: just say that endings are something like we project onto reality and that we see them in retrospect, but it is true that like sometimes as you're experiencing them, you're very aware of them. Mm -hmm. And Molly, am I wrong? Are you the one who suggested this idea? I feel like I can remember your voice going,
2: we should have an episode about endings. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, okay. I am a Sopranos fan. And super fan. Super fan.
0: I was like, fan is too little.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I've watched it, the whole series many times. Um, I think it's like probably the best TV show ever made. (laughs) Um, but it's ending is super famous. A lot of people don't understand it or were like left unsatisfied by it. It's also a series that many, many people watched in america and i think like every sunday would sit down to watch it and of course when they did the finale you know it was like the most people like the highest numbers of viewership ever Mm -hmm. and i remember my mom like setting aside time to like sit down and catch this because it was something to be watched anyway we should do a different episode on the sopranos i'm just very obsessed with that particular ending and the communal experience of it and how it ties into you know the end of the 20th century and other eras more broadly so i thought it would be good and a rich topic to to talk about yeah i mean
1: as a self-professed what, like, media and culture podcasts?
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what Tell- they, they make
1: you pick on Spotify. No, every yeah.
0: podcast is self-professed, right? It's yeah. not just
1: us. So if someone could profess this for us to back <laughs> us up. But yeah, as a media and culture podcast, I feel like endings are relevant to us in terms of media and in terms of our own personal life. And it's fun to take on something that's kind of daunting. Mm-hmm.
0: You know? <laughs> <laughs> it is daunting. I yeah. mean, I was, like, fighting for my life trying to research for this at first. Going to Google Scholar and typing in, like... The, the weirdest combos of words containing ending, just trying to see where it could take me and, and help me find a starting point, because this is a topic where it's so hard to find purchase, but then once you find that little area that you're interested in, you can tunnel so deep. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, this to me is really like a cliff face that we've been kind of excavating.
1: I love that the phrase used, trying to find purchase. It's mm. like, that's how I feel every time I've had an ending in my life, grappling on for something concrete, because... Yeah. It, an ending is abstract. One of the first areas of research I went to was like the apocalypse. And I won't get into too into that yet. But um, I kept thinking about that phrase, immanentize the eschaton. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this? Yeah. There's yeah. like that image of the woman with the <laughs> the machine. Do you know what it means to immanentize the eschaton? Gosh, I
0: knew it once, and, once upon so, a
1: time. So, I could be wrong. We might need to fact check me on this, but from what I understand, to immanentize is to like make material. And, and that, the, is, that is
2: E M M A N T. I M M A N. Because there's I M M E N T and then E-M-M-A-N-T.
0: Yes, it's A-N-T. not It's
1: not immanentized. Immanent. It's, 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 not, it's not eminent or immanent. <laughs> it's, it's a secret third it, word. It's immanent. Okay. immanentize So, so imminentize monetize? No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> oh, wait, Sin. it does start with an i. I thought it started with yeah. an e. So this is a different one. To, so something imminent is like a given, it's material, it's um like inherent kind of. So the eschaton is like the end times or the the, the ending or the
0: finale. In political theory and theology, to imminentize the eschaton is a generally pejorative phrase referring to attempts to bring about utopian conditions in the world to effectively create heaven on earth. And this was really founded in post-millennialism in the 1880s to 1930s, as well as Protestant reform movements during the Second Great Awakening in the 1830s.
1: So it's it's tied to post-millennialism, basically about this theatrical final act of humanity. The rapture. The rapture, yeah. As I was trying to find purchase with this topic, it made me think about how in life we try to find purchase with endings. And that is kind of one of the ways in which we do that is imminentizing the eschaton and like i guess the ludicrousness of trying to treat an ending as easy to understand or easy to locate is something that really fascinates me and i think the fact that we all went in such different directions to try to understand endings really exemplifies that it's very slippery
2: yeah it's very slippery i'm slipping right now (laughs) all over (laughs) (laughs) it um yeah it was hard for me to get my hooks into particular route for this but i have so many feelings so many feelings about it that when you guys were talking about like this condemnation of the idea that like we need to make heaven on earth i was brought back to catholic school Mm -hmm. where oh lovely uh, (laughs) sorry (laughs) about that (laughs) (laughs) well they taught us this really disturbing song and it was like the lyrics were stay awake be ready for you do not know the hour that the Lord is coming. But it was like, they give us like little snaps to do with it. So it was like, stay awake, be ready, for you do not know the hour of the Lord. <laughs> it was
0: like... Something oh, oh about God. Catholic snapping doesn't seem right to me. <laughs> yeah, right? Was, they should was, be clapping. Why are they not wailing and stomping?
2: Oh, there's, oh, like there's no wailing and stomping the in the Catholic Church.
0: Oh, no.
3: <laughs> 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 Wait, like,
2: Um... What were we talking about? Oh, yeah. The end times. Yes, the end times. So, like, yeah, that particular slogan that was drilled into my head through the magical pneumatic power of song and snapping, (laughs) that sticks out for me as something that formed my need for readiness because something was coming imminently. An end was coming imminently where I would
1: be judged. So, obviously, we're venturing into the territory of the abstract and lofty to bring things kind of back down to earth before heaven comes to reign upon earth we're going to focus more on media we're going to talk a little bit about how endings look in literature and movies etc and then we can kind of build our ideas from there
2: starting with the dog shit endings yes
1: Yes. the worst ones (laughs) because above all we are haters (laughs) (laughs) number one People are not finishing things. They're not like reading things and yeah. finishing them or watching them or finishing them.
0: Okay, real. Because yeah. I'm fighting for my life trying to finish reading something right like <laughs> <laughs> um, um, But moving into kind of a more concrete look at endings, we wanted to take a look at what you had to say because we love interacting with you. And we asked the audience what they thought of some famously bad endings. And a couple that came to mind were Game of Thrones, Titanic, how I met your mother, Harry Potter, Parks and Rec, and Community? A lot of these are controversial at the very least. also a lot of them
1: are TV shows, which is like mm-hmm. the yes. ending of a movie is such a such a different thing from the ending of a TV show totally it's like you, you're waiting for years, yes, for this ending
0: TV shows, I feel like have a a lot to live up to, like especially like lost too. I remember that being like a very, very controversial ending so when it amasses enough fans
1: wasn't it kind of along the lines of it was all a dream Uh, right
2: or it was all well we're we're gonna go ahead and spoil lost guys (laughs) (laughs) very new
1: hip show or wait no it was like it was all purgatory Yeah, yeah they all died yeah which is worse the they were dead all along ending or it was a dream ending
0: I think it was a dream.
2: I think you they think were dead
1: all along. Really? Which one is like which one's worse? Because which one do you dead all along
0: more? is a place, so I'd rather them be in a place rather than it was all a dream. So it was all a dream is often used to retcon things, and I think that's what I hate because I hate retconning, and that's why Wait, I can't can get you, into comics. Can you
2: say more about why you hate that?
0: Um. Yes, I actually can because <laughs> <You> I, <could. laughs> I did a ton of research about where the fuck did and it was all a dream. Dot dot dot. Come from. Um And so there's a lot of debate on what the origin of this was. And honestly, I don't know if it's too relevant to know what the origin is. Some people think it might be Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. Others think it was the Aeneid or a 17th century play. Um And that 17th century play is literally called Life is a Dream by Pedro Calderon de la Baraka. Uh So I don't really know why people were surprised by that, because he literally said it in the title. <laughs> but okay. Well,
1: media literacy. Media
0: literacy, right. The bitches back then were not reading... <laughs> Um, And then it's also used as an explanation for fantasy and like Wizard of Oz, Alice in Wonderland and can often be like as a moral device, you know, like we're dreaming about this like crazy reality and then you wake up and you change how you are, kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge. But but ultimately, I think what it's really used as is a cop out. And there's a couple of different TV shows where this happens. One is called Dallas, which was a long term soap opera kind of situation TV show. And then there was another one called Married with Children. Wait, and that was more sitcom. A soap opera did it was and it was all a dream ending? One of the more famous soap operas. And it didn't do wow. it as an ending. What? An ending ending because most of these soap operas are still ongoing. But this one did it as a season finale where there's like a full two seasons worth of content where one character has passed and it's like really traumatic for everybody. And this girl walks into the bedroom and then into her master suite bathroom or whatever. And sees she... him taking a shower. And he literally, like, sees her looking really, really afraid and then stops showering and comes outside and is like, what's going on? And she's, like, throwing herself at him and is like, it was horrible. It was, it was, you know, you had died and, like, all of this stuff happened. And then they literally play black clips from when she was thinking about that happening. And then they, it was all a dream it.
2: There's, like, there are so many genres for which this could be a plot device and soap opera is the one that has the least use for that. Yeah, like the conceit is that ridiculous dramatic things. Things happen happen all the time. He could have just,
0: you know, shaved his head and moved to Brazil and come back and we would have bought it, right? Mm. And then in Married with Children, what's really terrible about this one is what happened in Married with Children was that one of the lead actresses had been pregnant. And so they wrote the pregnancy into the show and then she miscarried. So then they went back and retconned the pregnancy by saying that it was a bad dream that her husband, the character on the show,
2: had had. I'm gagged. I'm That's gagged. awful. Isn't that awful? Whoa. And this was like hey, Wait, and this show was called Married with Children? Yes. Well, they cornered themselves with that one. They did corner themselves with that
0: one.
1: So I think the thing that frustrates me so much about the It Was All a Dream ending is that, like, it, it can be used to great effect as mm-hmm. an exploration of the psyche because your dreams are kind of a mishmash word salad of your subconscious and so i just hate when people are like well it's it can be thrown away because it was a dream Mm -hmm. like inception for example isn't it was all a dream movie taken to like a I don't know. It's, it's an exploration of the it was all a dream trope. Right. Mm-hmm. And The
0: lathe of Heaven is a short story version of it was all yeah. a dream that's done very excellently. Yeah,
1: much better than Inception. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, like, I think that's an example of a movie that's, like, not interested in psychological depth, but is using that trope, mm-hmm. albeit in a different direction. And it's just like, well, what is the point of the ending if it was all a dream?
2: Well, okay, so it is very frustrating to have the rug pulled out from under you in that way. Like, to say that None of it was real or material. none of it happened. It was just something that was happening um subconsciously or unconsciously in this character's mind. but like you said like i it can be used to like great effect like I'm thinking of the the trope of the dream ballet, which is something that happens primarily in musical theater, but it can happen you know in any media where at some point the characters just start doing like a wordless dance probably some kind of like balletic expressive thing to like clarify themes or um introduce symbolism it comes from the rogers and hammerstein oklahoma where in the first act they have like an 18 minute no singing dream ballet that sort of like capitulates Parts of the story or different themes, and I love that. I love a dream ballet, but I think the real reason why I prefer it was all a dream to they were dead the whole time is because they were dead the whole time. There were never any stakes, and if and if something was a dream the whole time, like you still are allowed to be attached to that character and all of their like potential futures now armed with this psychological exploration that they've just undergone
0: but that depends on how you view death though right i guess that's maybe why i don't think about it as like damn it so none of this mattered at all like i guess i suppose like especially considering lost for example as like a sort of purgatory state that's just another plane of existence that they're living in so to me i (laughs) would wait A plane, (laughs) a plane. 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 Okay, I see what you're saying. So it's just like
1: if you view death as an end, then they were dead the whole time Mm -hmm. is unsatisfying. But But if you you view death as
0: a type of life, which is how I view it, then it would just be like another place where all these things are happening. I think maybe that's how I think of it. Like death's a place.
2: For me, the selfish and lazy viewer. Yeah, <laughs> I just I want them <laughs> to continue living. In, That's what everybody in calls the you story. Molly. <laughs> Molly, Molly, selfish and lazy viewer. <laughs> That's my middle name. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, what are some other like types of endings? I think a lot of. Um, like endings where there suddenly is a moral like calling back to our first episode yes um he's just not that into you yeah has a very Uh, moralistic
2: ending a a kind of a retconned moralistic ending yeah Yeah,
0: where the guy is actually supposed to be a little bit likable i think that radley cooper plays and then he starts cheating and then he suddenly becomes like a total dick scumbag that like never believed in marriage anyway yeah doesn't want anyone else to be happy either, just like me
1: like there are <laughs> endings that tell you what you're supposed to think about what you just watched or read, and yeah. there are endings that want you to figure
0: that out on your own mm-hmm. quick aside Go ahead. this weekend not maybe not this weekend. this past week, I watched Saltburn. Which is mm. a dark academia movie. <laughs> is this that gonna be quick? Out. <laughs> Wait, And I'm, is, I'm gonna be very, very quick. Is it just, called dark academia? like no. genre. Or not, just I'm it just that. calling it that because it's aesthetically giving very much. academia. Okay. Mm. yeah, Canadian. go ahead. Mm. But um, Saltburn is supposed to be this movie about uh, two men who go to Oxford and meet there and develop this like homoerotic attachment, and then uh, the poorer one goes to stay at the richer one's home estate, Saltburn, for a holiday. And then things ensue and it gets a little bit dark and thrillery and I think one thing about endings and this this I promise ties back is the concept of a denouement or you know if you properly said it the French way mm-hmm. denouement or whatever. It comes from the French verb denouer to a not and I think that's so funny that it's also the same oh. concept in like oh, you know no. oh. and and I love French. <laughs> French is really cool, dude. I'm having so much fun learning it right now. But anyway, so to, to unknot, but then we also think of a good ending as quote-unquote tying up loose ends. Mm. So you're both unknotting the plot and then re-knotting all of the loose ends when you're trying to go- do a good ending. Oh, so they don't fray. So they don't fray.
1: Yeah, you tie a knot to keep the the actual length of cord from fraying. Fraying. Okay, the French can have this
0: one. They can have this one. And then the whole one. idea of like quote-unquote tight writing as well, I think, really fits with this too. So all of those little ways of understanding writing and narrative combined made me think about where I found Saltburn very lacking, was especially in this writing. Um, if you watch the movie on mute and you don't watch the last 30 minutes of it at all, it's a beautiful film. <laughs> 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 when you do listen to it and you hear all of the stuff that they're saying and how that works in the plot, or lack thereof, it gets quite upsettingly annoying. And... I, you know i'm not gonna go into it i just don't well, recommend that anyone waste their money I, on watching i this feel like movie. you should go into it like let's i want to concretize okay your critique because i think otherwise then we're not Perfect. really understanding why okay so i'll get into this um but this is all very heavy spoilers for the movie so you. this have is gonna
1: be our most forward. spoilery episode where it's yes. about endings. it's all about endings. my most spoiler
3: ever
0: <laughs> yes so jacob is playing the rich guy Barry's the poor guy And it turns out this whole time that Barry is a sociopath and he's been lying about not being... He's not poor. He has, like, none of these hardships that he's talking about. He even lies and says his father has died of alcoholism to endear him to this rich guy and get him to, like, become his friend. And all of this is under the guise of, like, also, like, a gay tension between the two of them. And so he's lying about everything. He goes to Saltburn. And then there's, like, another layer of... And he was a sociopath all along because it turns out he doesn't even care about the guy. He just wanted the estate of Saltburn to himself. So what he does is he figures out a way to get two of the children in the family to kill themselves. He waits out the father's passing and then he makes himself... Like, ingratiates himself with the mother and ultimately becomes her caretaker and s- basically pulls her off of life support when she starts getting ill So that he can, in the end, literally, I shit you not, dance naked in the halls of the Saltburn estate to murder on the dance floor.
1: I mean, regardless of of whether the character turns out to be evil or not, I hate when at the end of a movie or a story that it's revealed that a character had planned the entirety of the narrative the entire time. Because I think that's just so lazy, like explaining away coincidence is one of the most unmagical things you could do. I
0: like mm-hmm. it when it's done well, like an atonement. It,
1: I think of um the handmaiden as a great example of yes. it working well. Yes. Because that is like it does it to you multiple times. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, the
0: handmaiden really left me at the edge of my seat with it. So there's there's ways to do this all well. There's way to do the denouement well as well. But just to be so let down by Saltburn was really, really annoying because I had had such high hopes for this movie.
1: Well, and this was a very hyped movie. Like, yes. And yeah. I, I, I heard a lot of people talking about how they walked away from it, like gagged, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think that is not a good substitute for an ending.
0: It's not. You don't want to be assuming that your viewers are lazy and then be lazy in your writing. A smart film is going to get people to keep thinking about it and talking about it and niche indie movie theaters will have screenings of it every few years or so and it will live on in that way and become a classic to be so insufferable
2: to make a good movie is like being good at making love yes oh i'm terrible at both so (laughs) write this down (laughs) but it's like it's i don't know you have to like respect your audience and like if you're gonna leave them gagged um that's not very gentle that's not very like tender That's not very tender not even necessarily tender you know like it's not very um nuanced Mm -hmm. like it's not very subtle you're not taking them on a journey you're just kind of sucker punching them and then being like wow wasn't that crazy to continue trite metaphors not that that one was trite no it is
0: (laughs) (laughs) but um it's like a good meal you know like there's there's a good old fashioned jar marinara sauce and regular pasta and then there's a beautiful delicious pasta where you're like damn I can taste notes of lemon zest in this. Yeah. And there's
2: also like the pasta with the gold flakes on top. It's like yeah. it's not better just cuz it has gold flakes exactly. on top. Exactly.
1: I think you're identifying like is the is the ending a gimmick mm. or is it
0: filling? Oh yeah, this movie film? was a complete fucking gimmick and Uh, Get his ass. (laughs) Yeah, Friend of the Pod and Bestie Amu could back me up on this. So you have a non-pod voice letting you know as well that this is a fucking gimmick.
1: Molly, you saw a movie recently that also had an ending. And (laughs) also
2: had a Jacob Elordi in it. Yes! Um, This bitch is everywhere. This This bitch is everywhere. Yes, he's really good at being, like, a creepy dude who has, like, homerotic tension with the other men in the media. Mm -hmm. But I watched Priscilla the Sofia Coppola movie about Priscilla Presley that was based on the uh, autobiography that Priscilla Presley wrote. I was very curious about this movie. I read a lot of Letterboxd reviews and I read the half-star reviews and I read the five-star reviews. But then, you know, I came into it with like, well, any sort of maligned woman narrative is going to have polarized reactions. So... Women are very polarizing. Women are so it's true. polarizing. I hate <laughs> Refer them for to that. our previous episodes. <laughs> but yeah i ended up liking the movie i love sophia Coppola's ability to make me feel so much like a teenage girl again and it had me remembering like what it is to be young and not really receive any male attention and then all of a sudden be receiving the male attention that you covet in your wildest fantasies and then like your life stops (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but the ending of this two and a half is it two and a half hours i think it's like I don't, a, I don't know i is, wasn't there yeah <laughs> <laughs> even and i missed it because i slept in
0: <laughs> I'll, right. I'll check it for you yeah it's one hour 50 minutes
2: okay so at the end of this one hour and 50 minute movie that didn't really feel like that to me um you know priscilla has has aged the span of 14 to i think like 28 or mm-hmm. something like that and she's built this entire life with this crazy like pill popping rock star in this vibed out mansion this little indie musician known as elvis yes he's (laughs) pretty underground yeah i've heard of him burger records (laughs) Uh, and their relationship continues to deteriorate and she's losing her sense of self um, more and more wanting to find that sense of self and she ends up leaving him with her daughter and the last scene in the movie is her leaving graceland so it's an abrupt ending yeah um dolly parton i will always love you is playing as she is driving out of the gates and i think you see like a really beautiful set of expressions where she's realizing you know this is her ending like this is the end of this is the end of this phase of her life, and she is about to start a new one. She's obviously scared because she hasn't done anything differently since she was a child.
0: Oh,
2: she's only 28! She's only 28! And... I don't know, I, I really felt like I was able to identify so much with those facial expressions and, like, the sentiment behind it, I will always love you. like i i'm gonna go but know that i'll always love you like i'll always hold this part of my life so dear but i am moving on i don't know i've been feeling like that a lot lately yeah (laughs) like moving and stuff so i i I was i liked it but a lot of people didn't a lot of people thought it was abrupt i would say the abrupt ending is
1: like a subcategory of the open-ended ending Mm. and people have complicated feelings about those but especially an abrupt ending because it's like not only are you not told what to think but you are confronted with it very quickly. Yes. Yeah.
0: To and, be left wanting more is always a difficult feeling.
1: Yeah. I'm actually reminded of a story I have, which is, um, I think this was in high school or right after high school, I was seeing the sky and we were watching nowhere by Greg Araki together, which have you guys seen this? No. Okay. So it's just like kind of an art house, like super queer movie. And it's basically about teenage yearning, like, cool sexy alt kids yearning for each other in the wasteland of la and there's like this absurdist plot thread running throughout the entire movie of aliens and the apocalypse oh i I just
2: watched the doom generation so i'm 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 sensing a theme
1: (laughs) it's a trilogy okay so um yeah throughout the entire movie the main character he's having this kind of like tension with his situationship this hot girl and he starts kind of becoming attracted to this more earnest guy um mm-hmm. the classic bisexual dilemma we've all been there yeah <laughs> i'm watching this with a guy who i'm in an awkward situation ship with and as the end of the movie is approaching he turns to me and he's like what do you think of movies that end suddenly and i was like i i don't know and then moments later the movie ends and the ending of the movie is that <laughs> that was
0: not subtle king <laughs> i know
1: the ending of the movie is that these two boys after like a terrible weekend of murder and sex and drugs, finally end up in a bed together and they like confess their feelings and it's very soft and tender. And then an alien explodes out of one of them. Mm. And when I first saw it, I was like, well, fuck no, I don't like this. Cause like I wanted them to get together and like, I wanted the yearning to be complete and I wanted the narrative to be complete. I don't think it was a good, satisfying ending,
3: mm-hmm. but
1: then I watched that movie again recently and I was like, Oh wait, that's kind of the point is that it is abrupt is that the thing that you want gets taken away from you and i found it very ironic that i was having a parallel experience (laughs) to that movie so as i get older and older i'm like okay wait maybe abrupt endings can be really good because a lot of life does end abruptly yeah yeah
0: i mean i think i'm in the camp where i don't care how you end it just be thoughtful
1: just do it well. Do it
2: well. Do it. <laughs> be, be th- yeah, yeah, specifically
0: be thoughtful in a way that I like. Just, yeah.
2: <laughs> just don't be bad. It's yeah, not don't hard. be bad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just be talented. God, we're so smart. I'm so good at this.
1: Should we have like a closing statement for this section about like what the I next think, thing is? I think that was it. Okay. Oh. oh, yeah. It's an abrupt
3: ending. <laughs> okay.
0: a little bit about what makes an ending good or bad. This is your arts and culture podcast. We're here to provide you a little bit of literary theory. And so to start off, we're going to talk about Walter Benjamin's The Storyteller.
1: Yeah, so I read this essay in preparation for this episode. I'm going to do my best to give a synopsis of it. There's some kind of major details from the essay that I think are relevant to our contemporary understanding of endings. And so the first piece of information that you need to understand Benjamin's piece is that he differentiates between modes of stories so there's storytelling which usually takes form as an epic so um typically an oral tradition type thing and then he compares and contrasts that to the novel and the novel is an individual unit so it's a self-contained story and we'll kind of get into that later like why that complicates endings and even feeds into our anxiety about endings Benjamin was really concerned that with the advent of the Industrial Revolution, people would become alienated from pre-existing rhythms, quote-unquote, of daily life, and then all the traditions that kind of came with them. So, to kind of sum up his major points, I'm actually just going to, like, tell a story. It's not a very good one. (laughs) It's just an (laughs) example. Let's say you are a child. Some of us once were. goo goo gaga. Oh, you're already inhabiting the role. This is excellent and in this village you're growing up in everyone kind of has their role that they play in the communal labor and the children are taken care of by this older woman and as she takes care of you she does some sort of fucking i don't know textile work this isn't my expertise she's like knitting or she's at a loom or something Mm -hmm, antiquated mm -hmm. and because the task is so familiar to her and it's pleasantly repetitive she can talk to you while she does it and so you and all the children gather around and she tells you stories about people who came before you there's this important communal pillar that is built off of labor necessary boredom and collective listening as you grow older maybe you tell some of these stories you get better at things and you contribute to your own village and then one day when that older woman is in her decline and she's close to passing, you go and visit her because she's important to you. As she's on the brink of death, she draws you near and tells you her own story. After she passes, it becomes your responsibility to tell her story. I chose this little narrative because I think it sums up the major points of Benjamin's essay, The Storyteller. The first is that prior to the industrial developments in the modern world, labor was linked to storytelling and there was a necessary boredom that came with repetitive tasks that allowed us to ruminate on history and life and particularly lived experience, not in the kind of identity politics way as we think of it today, but like the stories of your people and those who came before you. An important routine of life was to reflect on the collective inherited narratives of your community like
2: an oral history
1: yes the epic is an act of looking back it's not a futurist storytelling mode
2: the angel of history which way is he looking yes exactly
1: benjamin was concerned that as we became more industrialized and developed we would become alienated from this labor You look at us today and we're not telling stories at work. We're discouraged from communicating. We are preoccupied with tasks that make it impossible to feel satisfied with our own labor or to, you know, connect with the people we work alongside. And there's certainly no kind of intergenerational connections happening there, right?
2: Not only are we shut off from our own labor, but we're shut off from our own death, too.
1: The other major point is that as we become alienated from our own labor, we also become alienated from the labor of death and the labor of dying. One of Benjamin's central arguments throughout all of his work is that death is a necessary part of the routine of human history.
3: Mm -hmm. And so
1: he has this really important quote about death in relationship to storytelling that I wanted to share, which is, it is, however, characteristic that not only a man's knowledge or wisdom But above all, his real life first assumes transmissible form at the moment of his death, just as a sequence of images is set in motion inside a man as his life comes to an end. Suddenly, in his expressions and looks, the unforgettable emerges and imparts to everything that concerned him that authority, which even the poorest wretch in dying possesses for the living around him. Hmm. This authority is at the very source of the story. So basically, dying imbues you with a gravitas. Every human's life is important, and therefore their death is important. You know, I think of like classic war movies Mm -hmm. where this man is dying on the battlefield and he pulls his brother in arms to him and is like, you have to tell my wife like that I love her, blah, 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 tell her the story of my life. You become responsible for the stories of those who have come before you. But if we're alienated from death, then... And each other. Yeah, you can't tell somebody's story. Their story dies with them. Exactly. The thing I kept thinking about is, like, if death is sealed off from culture, we will inevitably develop complexes about endings of narratives. Like, I think when we witness death, we're able to have a more loving and discerning relationship with that which doesn't die. Right? Storytelling and epics are about the eternal. That's what Benjamin calls it, the eternal. If you're keeping up with me, I know it's a lot. If we return to the idea of the novel, the novel is kind of a commodified individualistic object.
0: I mean, the novel is a modern invention. The epic is a more natural form of storytelling, whereas, like you said, the novel is a commodity object. And I feel like I've been noticing that a lot recently. Famously, I am known for being a big romance novel ripper fan, and I can't think of anything else that is more easy to enjoy and really Consume is the correct word a lot of the time, within a vacuum, without a rich context to kind of inform it.
2: If you think about the romance novel versus your grandmother's dying reminiscence, which one of those helps us know better who we are? Which one of those connects us more deeply to each other? Which one of those helps us, helps to inform what this present moment means?
0: It's not even about realism at a certain point. It's more about, like, groundedness and connectivity that these stories are able to provide us. So when it's, like, your dying grandmother's narrative or Beowulf or the Odyssey, these stories that people use to preserve a culture and a history and then a personal culture and a personal history in the case of a grandmother, then those things are very distinct from a novel because they're meant to be personalized. And I think the novel is meant to be mass-market consumed.
1: I think contemporarily, we consider the novel to be old. Yeah. You know, there's this kind of, I don't know, pretentious attitude that reading a novel is like the highest form of intellectualism. But like, as many cultures of today still hold dear the the epic, the narrative, the oral tradition. Mm -hmm. Something that stuck out to me that Benjamin pointed out is the novel is kind of a selfish, jealous thing. It's removed from time. Like, it doesn't want to be influenced by anything. It even comes pre-packaged with psychoanalytic depth. Conversely, the epic is rich with historical detail. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't really matter what Hercules' psychology was. What matters is... Hercules
0: barely matters in the first place. He's a way to explore all the things that were happening to the Greeks at the time. A
2: novel is escapist, and whereas the epic is contemplative. The conclusion I came to is
1: that the soonest an epic can end is now is this present moment. So there's this inspiring feeling you get when you hear an oral tradition is, oh, well, I'm the present. I'm the ending. But that also makes me the beginning.
0: Versus the most, I think, intimate way you could read a novel would be to be like a book club kind of situation. But it is a very solitary activity.
1: Do you guys ever get really sad when you finish books? Yeah. I was thinking about that. Like, I oftentimes feel very desolate when I finish a book. And Benjamin's point is that the end of a book is a death it's a death of these imagined characters and so it makes sense that you kind of grieve it and feel solemn and sad Mm -hmm. but whenever i as you two know i'm a big lover of the stories of my family i feel very passionately about carrying them on and one of my favorite things is listening to my grandma tell stories of her childhood Mm -hmm. and i never feel empty after I. they
2: live in you
0: just goes to show like it is so much more meaningful and it's not meaningful to you just because it's your grandmother. Um, it adds a layer of meaning to it, but it's also meaningful to the other people that are listening to it because it's this person's history and their personal life and that carries a meaning that is broader than just like fiction
2: in yeah. a way. It's if your own past, if what came before you is obfuscated from you and you are looking forward into the future. Or, you know, looking down at your feet in the present, unable to think back, like, what a barren landscape that is. There's nothing to populate it yet. And so I feel like there's just immense pressure to create your own history, to create your own individualistic story.
0: Or to escape. I mean, so many people live this way. I think all the time about, like, Marvel super fans and people that keep up with, like, all of the different threads in a comic and all the retcon things and on earth 616 this happens but on earth 712 this doesn't happen nerding out and geeking out provide you a way to enter into a world Mm -hmm. and i think that's like one element of fantasy that can help kind of recreate this experience in a simulacrum
1: what you were saying molly reminds me of you know how sometimes people will get really what i'm trying to think of the exact phrase people will use where they're like i want to leave something behind
2: Mm-hmm. like, like a, thinking about a legacy yeah thinking oh, about a legacy they want to it, do something for posterity yeah mm-hmm. and it's like well
1: you are a legacy not necessarily of your family but just of every person that came before you simply by existing you will help create posterity for others i don't know mm-hmm. if, if that even makes sense it makes but. sense
0: i mean it, it plays into a anxiety about the ending in that anxiety about the ending there's not as much of an effort made to promote renewal because like we've been pointing to throughout this episode, um, an ending is oftentimes an opportunity for a beginning or reality or in reality. Um, the line between ending and beginning is a lot more blurred than we think.
2: Well, it's cyclical. It's
1: a
0: regenerative cycle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. An early angle for this research that I took was thinking about the hero's journey. But I think a lot of the hero's journey has been boiled down to the extremely cliche three act structure and so before I even read Benjamin's essay I was thinking on my own about like what is the fourth act in a three act play Mm -hmm. and what I decided on personally was that the fourth act is you leaving the theater putting down the book or turning off your tv and walking away and carrying that story so you don't have to engage with people's own stories to be able to have that Mm meta-narrative right
0: right and fan fiction is a great way to create a fourth narrative. I mean, that's making me think of Russian formalism. Amazing that I'm connecting these two. <laughs> Russian formalism reminds me of fan fiction because, you know, there's these two concepts in formalism that there's a fabula and a sujet, and the fabula is the narrative as it proceeds. So if a story begins with a character dying, and then the rest of the story is told in flashbacks, the chronological story of their life is the fabula, and the sujet is starting with the death and moving the narrative on in terms of time. So as uh, like the movie starts playing, that's the sujet. Especially in a narrative context, where we decide to put an ending is so arbitrary, it may seem like things have a quote unquote natural ending in storytelling, but a lot of the time you can just totally tease apart the linear narrative and the chronological narrative and see what happens and how that affects the story. Because, you know, it, it would change quite a bit if you just told it as it happened and made everything into a biography of sorts. But then by doing, like, a cutscene or a flashback or interspersing two na- narratives together, you really, really change how the overall product is made.
1: This is as good a chance as any for me to ask. Is that basically what
2: postmodernism is, though?
0: In a way, yeah. yeah. I-,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was, this is funny, when I was thinking about what we were going to watch, for this episode I thought about suggesting Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. just because it's so famous for its like non-linear plot structure I'm glad we didn't yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm glad we didn't too but there's so much to be had with a non-linear plot structure I mean so in preparation for thinking about fabula and Shuzet and all of these other things with Russian formalism I read this really wonderful PhD thesis from 2016 written by Stuart Bell at the University of Glasgow and it's titled Don't Stop Rethinking the Function of Endings in Narrative Television. And there's this one thing that he says that really, really stands out to me, which is that open endings are a reaction to quote-unquote tyranny of closure. And the idea of tyranny of closure he builds up initially by saying that these intra-narrative endings that can happen, like for example Lost having like subplots within the episode that can be like cohesive and then move on to a different character and look at their plot, or doing choppy storytelling, non-linear storytelling, whatever you have, and having an open ending, calling it an island of cohesion and structure really stood out to me, because it really geographizes the place that we're looking at, and instead of looking at this as a decision that you make at a point in time, right, a quote-unquote natural ending that exists somewhere or other, it's actually just a way that you are forming the universe using the words and the plot structure. And I wish more and more writers would think about craft in this way, because I think that can be a really effective way to understand why you're making the decisions that you make and whether or not it really is strengthening the story that you're telling. When we break it down and look at it this way, in terms of writing, that has a practical effect in real life as well. When we're trying to put like a hard stop, hard ending on situations that are evolving, on things that are going on in our lives, we realize that that's not really how things work. We even talked about this at the beginning of the episode. Death doesn't even always happen like that. Usually, it happens in stages.
1: This is making me think of another thing I wanted to discuss with you guys, which is, like, how does the main character phenomenon fit into all of this? Because my take is, like... The
0: TikTok main character phenomenon? Yeah,
1: just, like, that sort of attitude in general. My take is that it's an anxiety about having a coherent life.
2: Yeah, how to live a non-rhizomatic life. (laughs) Literally. I mean... I I wrote a poem about this. The poem was about how when you walk on land, you're walking on land that everyone before you has walked on and like everyone will leave some kind of fossil. It is not easy to get rid of that evidence. And so to be willfully ignorant of all those who came before you, maybe not not wit- willfully ignorant, but like to not be cognizant that you are part of a cycle. It's not a rich life.
0: I mean, and and that's it. You're modeling your life off of TikTok, off of being main character energy, this kind of girl, that kind of girl. End
1: of your, this era, like, and yeah, yeah, beginning of
0: this era. Even even going as far as like internalizing the joke of a sleigh era and a flop era ignores the fact that you are just living a life with a rich number of influences, a rich number of forces that are acting upon you, forces from within yourself, and you're not really sure how it's all going to play out. And so to project this kind of plot graph onto it, like you're in third grade doing a book report, can be so toxic in a way, because it really limits your growth and your opportunity to make mistakes, to grow from those mistakes, or to even make decisions that are not precedented. Because if you're trying to live the main character life, you're probably trying to follow a script, and there's not a script for being human. You just try to live your life and see what happens.
2: This is making me think of what we sort of gave some brief lip service to earlier, that there's so much written about endings that are not really, it's not really written about an ending, it's written about seasons or cycles. Mm-hmm. If I could, I would like to read a poem. Please do. Okay. You just gave me the most demure
0: look. <laughs> Please, do. May, I? May um, I read another?
2: No, this poem has been super important to me. My godfather shared it with me. It is by Gerard Manley Hopkins. It's called Spring and Fall. The conceit is sort of that this poem is being addressed to a young child. There's like a short dedication at the beginning, just to a young child. Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? Leaves like the things of man you with your fresh thoughts care for can you? Ah, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder by and by, nor spare a sigh, though worlds of wanwood leaf meal lie, and yet you will weep and know why. Now, no matter, child, the name, sorrow's springs are the same. Nor mouth had, no, nor mind expressed, what heart heard of, ghost guessed. It is the blight man was born for, it is Margaret you mourn for. So I love that poem so so much. It's like if you're addressing a young child, like they're crying because the leaves are falling. You know why you're weeping. It's because you will fall too. Like you will decay. Yeah, it's something that you know on a deep level when you're very young. And you continue to like carry that melancholy forward through your whole life. We've been talking about anxiety about endings, but I think Even beneath that anxiety is the melancholy for the loss of the prior cycle.
0: We talk about this when we talk about alienation, and often we're talking around it. But I think one thing that I've always been very insistent about is by confronting the specter that capitalism casts across your life, and by confronting the specter that your impending death casts across your life, you're able to live a richer, fuller life because you are not spending so much energy and so much time veiling yourself from these two realities that are going on around you all the time and that's not to say that it's easy it's incredibly hard and it's incredibly demoralizing a lot of the time but being able to do that at least helps you not have to bullshit yourself constantly
1: if our anxiety about endings is correlated to our anxiety about death i just feel like there's some hauntological shit going on where like Mm -hmm. when you're separated from death you think of death as an absence. Mm. And then that absence is absent. But death isn't an absence. It is like a richness that fills in the gaps in human history and tradition. It's like, it's, it's necessary. It's necessary. Like we wouldn't be alive without it. Lately, personally, I've been feeling so much less sure about my life. Like I have less and less advice to give.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I become more and more confident that the only thing i know is that one day i will die and that is making me so much happier because really? like i don't need yeah. to make sense of anything oh my god i just need to live, live. and i live. know that at the end like this thing will be here waiting for me that's the only ending i need to be confident in
2: bro you should be ramdaz okay yeah. <laughs> no
0: for sure because like i mean who for on whose demand are you trying to figure everything out right and if it's your demand you can always fix it you can always decide I don't want to do this anymore and I would rather live my life in a different way and there's so much happiness in choosing to not be ignorant about the things around you but also choosing to not mire yourself in this constant obsession with making meaning and forcing meaning and finding meaning because the meaning is in the living there's not really anything you can do other than just live your life
1: I read a little bit of frank kermode's the sense of an ending which is considered kind of a pivotal text in literary analysis i will be honest i really just skimmed it and then i read what other people wrote about it so i'm no expert but one of the big things i noticed in his writing was this really prescient analysis of the relationship between narrativization and history making kermode says that in the past we always discuss it as this kind of pinnacle of culture ideology practice living etc cetera, etc cetera. and that everybody in every age always considers themselves in the middle of time we kind of talked about this in our ecosexuality episode that the way things are being conducted in the present moment or in the middle of time is undoubtedly leading to the downfall of the future moment for you know example calling back to the novel when the novel came about people were like well this is a sign of the end times for all of human history we have always felt the end coming and we have tried to expel that feeling
0: through so many different types of art i i love that idea that we always think we're living in the middle of time especially since if we're living in the middle of time then why are we so certain that the end times are coming Because wouldn't that be quite a bit later if we're in the middle of time? Yeah. (laughs) But it doesn't have to make sense because it doesn't make sense in the first place.
2: Famous modernist poet Jeff Tweedy once said, (laughs) 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 every generation thinks it's the end of the world. Yeah, like fucking Age of Aquarius and all that bullshit. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And then I think... Y2K.
1: The fact that every generation has this anxiety, I mean, oh my god, it's just fucking compounding. So it's like, Mm -hmm. well, if it didn't happen before, it's definitely gonna happen now. It's definitely gonna happen
0: now. Right. But I don't know. That's it, It's human to be anxious. I don't think that like the takeaway is stop being anxious, right? Basically, anything that a self-help book is saying, <laughs> don't do that. We'll <laughs> write our own self-help book. Right? And then you can do
2: that. <laughs> the way to sort of combat that anxiety is to look into the world of things and like try to ground yourself in that. Find be here and that. nowhere else. Be here now. It made me think of something that the poet Wallace Stevens said. So he described human imagination as like kind of a means of survival, pitting like the quote-unquote the pressure of reality against the human imagination, noting it is a peculiarity of the imagination that it is always the end of an era. Um, And he wrote this not to be like so poem-pilled, but i am
0: <laughs> how dare you love poems this is a poem <laughs> Molly is a freak PPP
2: but he wrote this poem <laughs> he wrote this poem called the angel surrounded by paysons which is like peasants or like countrymen and he wrote it about this painting that he encountered where there was this ornate piece of glass in the middle of a bunch of more austere glass bottles And so he imagined the glass, the fancy glass, in the middle of the painting as the angel, and around it were these commonplace countrymen. And so in the poem, it's set up where there's a knock at the door, they answer it, and there's this angel standing there, although it doesn't look quite like an angel, it just kind of looks like a man. Um, And the quote is, I am the angel of reality, seen for the moment standing in the door, and a bit later, he calls himself the necessary angel of earth, since in my sight you see the earth again, cleared of its stiff and stubborn manlock set, and in my hearing you hear its tragic drone." So to him, imagination is this necessary angel that comes in to relieve us of the pressures of reality. He was writing in the 20th century, like around World War II and all this crazy, violent turmoil globally. So after Benjamin. After Benjamin, right? Um, I love that they're both obsessed with angels. Mm. (laughs) Like, creating (laughs) angels to explain reality. I felt like that belonged in this discussion. I don't know why, I mean, what are you- Because,
0: yeah, because we're talking about endings, we're talking about why and how endings are a part of literature. And that is because they're a part of our reality. And imagination is a tool that we can use to parse that reality, to understand it. And I think what Wallace Stevens is kind of pointing to is that another verb that we can use is that imagination can be protective.
1: That's brilliant, because even though Benjamin was mourning the loss of the storyteller in society, I don't think he was ever telling us that we should return to a society that is built around the storyteller. I think he was just saying, like, well, we're entering... Into something that requires a different type of story. And so, even though, like, say the novel is this individualistic art object, it's not a bad thing. Like, novelistic storytelling isn't a bad thing in the same way that epic storytelling isn't a bad thing. And you should mix history and imagination and futurism in whatever way you like. There's no proper way to deal with existential anxiety creatively,
3: you
0: know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's always going to change and be in flux because there is such a big element of personal preference. What if you don't like an epic? Or what if you don't like novels, and you only prefer storytelling from your friend's grandma? Like, Those are all things that are valid ways to move through the world, but I think it's the danger of not using any of those methods or relying Mm -hmm. too heavily on just one of those methods. There's always a beauty in moderation and a way that that can be a really grounding and healing force. There's so many topics that we talk about that we always kind of come back to the idea of finding moderation, finding balance.
1: Well, how do I say this? People should tell stories. Your stories will always be
2: important. I th- kind of think like what Stevens is saying is like be mindful and creative and joyful about how you make meaning in the world.
1: So one of my favorite stories is a movie by the name of The Last Holiday, I think it's from 2006, directed by Wayne Wang. This is a movie my mom and I have watched together so many times. It's kind of a Christmas movie, to be honest, though it's not really about Christmas. I feel like they kind of gloss over Christmas in the story. Anyway, they're all just wearing coats. Yeah, it's it's
0: called The Last Holiday, but like, or Last Holiday. I think it's
1: holiday, as in like, like you're going on a holiday.
0: Oh, a holiday. You know, that makes sense because it is based off of a 1950 British film. And Last Holiday (laughs) is totally something that British people would say. Oh, damn. You know, I didn't know it was based on something. To Americanify it.
1: Yeah, it stars Queen Latifah. She's playing this really, like, oh my god, she's just playing this very cute, charming, Demure.
0: demure.
1: She's like a Jane Austen character. Almost. Yes, this
0: this movie is so Austen coded, you guys. <laughs> yeah, there's a Mister Knightley ass like male <laughs> character and everything played by LL Cool J. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, the speed run of the plot is Georgia May works at a department store, and she finds out after hitting her head on something and getting an incidental scan that she has a rare kind of brain disease that is going to cause her to have only a few more weeks left to live. She has
2: Lampington's disease. Yes, Yes. fictional. I love Lampington's disease. Yes,
0: donate to the Lampington Disease Foundation
2: today. (laughs) I have a Lampington's disease ribbon magnet on the bumper of my car. Yes. That's how strongly I feel about Lampington's disease.
0: Lampington. (laughs) She has fake Lampington's disease, um, but she is really, you know, devastated by this, especially since she feels like in a lot of ways her life has hardly begun. She's been eating lean cuisines all the time. She loves to cook, but she only does it for her neighbor's kid. And she doesn't really have a lot to be excited about. So once she finds out this news, she decides to go crazy and live her life. And so she liquidates like a ton of her money and goes on a crazy intense vacation to Prague. And like we talked about, she loves cooking. She loves uh, chef culture and all of that stuff. So she goes to stay at this like beautiful restaurant where chef.
2: Wait, what is chef culture? Chef
0: culture, <laughs> like, yes, chef. <laughs> yes,
1: chef. She loves emerald, and yeah, then this yeah. this French chef who's played by Gerard Depardieu.
0: Yes, and his name is
1: Chef
3: Didier. Chef Didier.
0: And she has a blast, but then you know there's a true two thousands rom com background plot that's really funny where. The CEO of the department store is also there at the same time. And he is convinced that Georgia is some kind of op of his that's trying to prevent him from closing a deal.
1: Because he lobbying happens in this movie (laughs) where the what is it? The congressman, the the senator of her town who was supposed to visit her church, but he never showed up. And the owner of her department store franchise are doing some sort of shady dealings at this hotel in Prague. And she's just there to have Oh, and hotel. it's
0: called the Grand Hotel poop.
1: Yeah, Grand Hotel poop.
3: The poop hotel.
1: Um, yeah, there's also a plot thread in the background where like this guy she's had a crush on forever, she she's interested in him and he's interested in her. And then there's the lobbying going on. But yes, go on. <laughs>
0: well that well that's really it. Like it's like all comes to a beautiful climax where the guy makes it to the hotel and, you know, the lobbying deal ultimately falls through because everyone realizes the owner's a jackass and then Spoiler, the fake disease, Lampington's disease, she also didn't have. It turned out that the CT scanner was faulty. And anybody that went through it would be showing the same brain lesions on their CT scan. Um, so she does have more than three weeks to live.
1: Wait, I okay. I could We be also a-
0: jokingly called it Everybody Clapped the movie. Because there were so many scenes where something would happen and literally everybody would clap. But you
1: want to clap because you want she's so charming. Okay, I might be misremembering and attributing like good narrative detail where there is none but i'm pretty sure at the beginning of the movie there's some comment about how they just got the the machine no you're right no, like on sale they
2: said new to us but we got it used yes yes
1: and so it's like the greed of the corporation is what causes her to get this faulty diagnosis in like, the first place it for a rom-com from 2006 it really definitely handles these socioeconomic clashes
0: It's intellectual. Yeah. This is an intellectual
1: thing. There's some, like, race politics in there that I think are handled fairly well for the time. Yes,
2: yeah. Because there is the class politic, there is also an implied race politic. Yes. It's so deft. Like, really. Like, talk about a
0: movie that delivers on a good ending. Yes. You know what I'm saying?
2: Any other movie that wrapped up this neatly would have left me unsatisfied. It would have been too shallow. But... I don't know. It was okay with me because the movie doesn't present itself as anything other than a Mm rom-com. Although it does sneak in these uh, sharp points. Um, But yeah, it it ends even with like the, what is that? Sort of like the turning of the scrapbook page with people in the what happens after, you know, the final scene. Like the bad guy got us come up and he got hit by a bus and the doctor who misdiagnosed her. Quit the medical profession is now in an ashram. Like
1: everybody quits their job in this movie. Yes, job. Which is what makes it not a girl boss movie. I think. That's yeah, brilliant. which I love. I
0: feel like making her a girl boss would have made her really unlikable hmm. and transformed this into a hallmark movie. Yeah. Had she been a girl boss, but the fact that she's this woman that's like, "Are you shitting me? Okay, I'm going to liquidate all my stuff and go on a crazy vacation because yeah, she quits I her job." Yeah. She mm-hmm. says at one point, like, you know, oh my god, this quote is so sweet when she's writing her will that she's lived her whole life in a box and she doesn't want to spend her passing in one so she wants to be cremated and i remember being like so struck by that because that's really heavy stuff to be saying in a rom-com for one and it's also a pretty good commentary on the experience of being a working person and feeling like all i do is i go to work and i sit in this box and someday i'll be in another box the morbidity of capitalism really jumps through and the fact that this is in a freaking 2006 rom-com is incredible yeah. this movie did for us it healed the trauma that he's just not that into you caused us at the first episode of the podcast by being a sleigh rom-com
2: yeah yeah i thought this was a really good movie to watch for this episode because it asked the question if you knew that your end was coming more imminently than you ever could have expected what would you do and it's so satisfying to watch someone who has been self-effacing for their entire life be completely indulgent and invest in themselves.
0: Yeah. yeah. And in others. Like, she, she's able to speak yeah. her mind now. So she gets in people's business. She tells the mistress of, like, the um, department CEO. store owner and stuff, like, you need to leave him. Like, she, just boldly like that. Or well, on the yeah. plane. She's like... I don't want this guy in my
2: lap on this like Oh my economy god. Anatomy That was honestly the best part of the movie. That scene is crazy. She is on the plane to Czech, Czech Republic. Shout out my people. Um, <laughs> 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 the Turks are shaking and right now. No. <laughs> um, she's on the plane to Czech and she is not in first class she's in coach and the guy in front of her is messing with his recliner and she's getting cramped and he's complaining about her because her knees are hitting the back of the seat and tattling on the um steward and they're coming over and trying to give her the business and she is like you know what no you know why this is happening it's because this airline has overcrowded because they want to make more money selling she calls more greedy. seats. Yeah. She calls them greedy. And everybody clapped. And, and everybody you know what? Claps. It's so good because if this movie had been made today with the way
1: that we make these kind of slightly politically charged feel-good movies, she would have instead said something like, yeah it's not okay because men think that they can just recline and not care about like a woman's legroom like men love to whatever it it was
0: a real root cause analysis yes and that's what
1: she does the entire time every single conflict she has with another character it ends up getting to the like the root cause like i'm really blown away thinking about specifically her relationships with the women in the film like she becomes very close with the women who work at the hotel, but also the women who are antagonizing the workers, like mm-hmm. the, the upper class American woman. And the way she's able to handle the conflicts between the workers and the hotel staff, but then also the individual problems. I mean, it's just...
0: She's stunning. I mean, it's amazing. this is like Mansfield Park and Emma in one novel.
1: It is kind of emma that,
0: that was a movie. She does have her nose Wain-wain. in
1: everybody's business. She does, but
0: it's so charming. She's not a bitch like Emma. And Emma is charming because she's a bitch. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I love her. But there's something like Fanny from Mansfield Park about Georgia May. Um, man, I would have written a great paper about this back in the You undergrad. should still write it.
1: <laughs> I was talking to my mom about this movie after I just watched it, and... I feel like it is kind of the perfect fantasy. It's true to life and it's relatable, but it's not necessarily authentic, which I think a lot of people, you know, are starting to dislike relatable things. Mm -hmm. But this is a great example of like, Georgia May is relatable. We've all kind of gone through the problems that she's experiencing, but not many of us have done what she ends up doing. You know, to she, live out loud. Yeah. You know how sometimes you will get into an argument and you think of later what you wanted to say? Mm-hmm. This movie very much taps into that fantasy of like, well, I would have said this in that moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is... Wow, what a attractive and desirable fantasy to be able to, when shit gets real, also get real. Yeah. Even if your entire life you were petrified and mortified and afraid of going for it like she is in the exposition of this movie. You can overcome that and step into your own power. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about my own neuroses <laughs> in this movie. You it have was, neuroses? What? No. <laughs> um it was so funny Gabe when we were watching this uh when she's, you know, you know, grinning and kind of softly giggling to herself while she's cooking along with Emerald and she then she serves it up to her neighbor's kid. And then she puts her sad-ass lean cuisine in the microwave and eats that. And I was like, I said, what? And you said, uh, yeah, she has some stuff to work through. (laughs) I was like, wait. You got her ass. I have stuff to work through. This has really made me think about, um, endings as a deadline. And... Like I mentioned earlier, briefly, like I got into the British bureaucratic work. <laughs> yes. Algorithm formula. Why are we things. so niche? We're so um. niche. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I mean, what's this uh, episode about? It's, um. It sounds niche when I say that, <laughs> but um, I'll just read it to you. It's called Parkinson's Law, uh, and it's the observation that, like, during like in public administration or bureaucracy, work expands and contracts to fill the time allowed. Oh my God, (laughs) I need to tell my dad about this. (laughs) Yes. Um, So like, it doesn't matter when your deadline is, you're going to generate work to meet that deadline, whether or not it's two weeks or two months or two years it's gonna happen and so, so real? and so like she in this movie George i'm was, having crisis i can't yeah. believe i have a british bureaucracy <laughs> <laughs> it like the, it's it gets crazy it's like it can be presented mathematically with like x equals 2k exponential m plus p oh divided God. by n I'm always <laughs> I mean, saying that i'm always I'm saying that, always <laughs> saying that. <laughs> where it's like k is the number of of officials wanting subordinates and then M is the hours that they spend writing minutes to each other. It's like Jeez. it's kind of funny.
0: That's amazing that he plotted an equation.
2: It's like very Dilbert. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It
0: is very Dilbert.
2: But um, but yeah, I like applying that law to this movie because she lives her whole life doing this, this labor, mm-hmm. this work that isn't really meaningful to her, but is but is filling her life and filling her days. Believe it. Like she is, she's working hard. Mm-hmm. And then when this deadline is imposed, she has her last holiday in which she accomplishes the labor of fulfilling her desires and trying to actualize herself before it's too late. It's beautiful. There's that Miski song. What is it? I work better under a deadline. I pick a date when I'm going to disappear and and until then I'll work. That's kind of morbid, but... So, eh, no, so is the movie. So is the movie. It's so like... is the
0: movie. I mean, yeah. She wouldn't have done any of this. She would have lived her stayed life had she not thought she was going to die. And that's also yeah. quite sobering. To be, like, the the core of this, like, oh, everything could have gone on the same forever if that stupid CT scanner hadn't given her that false result. Because she constantly chickens out. She didn't want to forward her stuff with that relationship that was kind of budding at work. You know, she ate her lean cuisine she had that picture of that guy in her possibilities scrapbook but never really wanted to take those steps to make all of those things possible for her because there
1: were no stakes I know so many people who live and have lived their lives this way where they I mean if I can be so harsh they waste it daydreaming Mm -hmm. there are people who die like never having done a single thing that they wanted to do
0: and this is why like, bucket lists are actually kind of cool and not cringe.
1: Yeah. Well, Arouge and I have a very special connection with a bucket list. Mm-hmm. Should I tell this? Is that okay? I don't have to. Yeah, tell it. Okay. When I was going through a really rough time in my life and I felt like I didn't want to do anything ever, um, I wrote a really corny list of things I wanted to do before I die. And a lot of it was just kind of average stuff. It was mm-hmm. like I don't know, like travel somewhere, blah blah blah, or like make a new friend or something like that. But some of it was more specific. And as a version I got closer and closer. Do you do you want to tell this moment?
0: Um I can I was in a moment of vulnerability and I remember talking to Gabe about how I felt about that and Molly was there and so was our friend Amu. And I was just like, you know what? Like I'm so sick of it, like I just don't know if there are things that I feel like are worth it. And Gabe showed me his list and told me that I should try making my own list based off of that one. And I still have that list and I keep it on my fridge. And it's a good reminder to me that you don't have to go bungee jumping and you don't have to do like a thousand crazy things. Sometimes a bucket list can be simple, beautiful things that make you want to keep going. And I know one of mine that I added to that was to cook through a cookbook. That's cute. Um, Wait, uh, that's, cute. So <laughs> that's so
1: Georgia May Bird.
0: <laughs> that's so Georgia the May Bird.
1: The reason I've come to appreciate a bucket list is because it's kind of the opposite of an epic. If the epic prizes volume over detail, so does a bucket list. Like mm-hmm. I would rather have a bucket list that's a million things than a bucket list that's
0: one thing. For sure. For fucking sure. Because yeah. what else is keeping you, you know? Exactly. And that's a scary feeling. It's a scary feeling to feel like there's not a whole lot between me and this giant abyss that is everything that comes after this beautiful life. And so if you can make a bucket list, if you can use it to beautify your life, that can be such a beautiful tool.
1: Well, even in the same way that like the epic is shared, like mm-hmm. we share that list.
0: We shared now, that list. and like, It doesn't have to be solo.
2: Yeah. The list is more powerful because you shared it.
0: Yes, yeah, Exactly. absolutely. It's something I treasure and it's written on the back of a piece of printer paper with a picture on it. I think. With like <laughs>
2: pictures of waterfalls.
0: Yes, of water, <laughs> waterfall and a rainbow. I think, yeah. like placid.
1: <laughs> yeah. When well, it's like imagine that idea expanding outward. That's kind of what Georgia Maybird does, and
0: she does it
2: to all those well, people. I thought that that like her possibilities book. It's a scrapbook of things that she has. It's like her vision board, mm-hmm. but it's things like you know, it's her and Elle, Cool J's face is pasted onto, like, a just married mm-hmm. couple, and it's her going to this hotel that she ends up at, and it's her, you know, meeting Emerald and meeting Chef Didier. It's all in there, and you see her do this, and you might think at first, like, oh, how sad, how cringe, like, how pathetic. She can't actualize any of this, but when I saw that, I was like, that is so bold mm-hmm. to put this down into this, like, physical manifestation of things that you want like it's a way for you to protect and compartmentalize like your wildest fantasies and i feel like i don't even do that sometimes like i get so paralyzed with the responsibility i feel for my wildest dreams that i protect them in my head
0: yeah this fear that you're gonna jinx it
2: yes oh my gosh yeah so like um you guys you guys have student syndrome Mm mm-hmm where you you don't work on something until the very last minute yeah my your, life yeah <laughs> it's me too another word for it is plain procrastination when a student will only start to apply themselves to an assignment at the last possible moment before the deadline it's like shooting yourself in the foot and a lot of times the way i think about it is like i'm not going to run this race so i don't lose this race mm-hmm. the best way to protect yourself from an unsatisfying ending is to never begin wig <laughs> wig. <laughs> the saddest wig this, my, saddest my saddest wig, wig yet, i mean ever. what the fuck do you do about that i like, mean there's actually one scene in the movie that i just loved and she she's um in the process of liquidating her ira and like the bonds that her mom left for her and the the teller is giving her all these traveler's checks and i was like well a woman like you i'm sure you have a very good like disciplined reason for Mm -hmm. um for you know cashing out your IRA early and she looks at it and she grins and she says I'm just gonna blow it and oh I love that because like yeah like she's just gonna blow the money on whatever she wants right with no regard for the future but I thought about like when you get too precious about when you're trying to make art Um... it can be really helpful to be like I'm just gonna blow it, like I'm just gonna make something really ugly because that is a necessary part of actualizing something really great. Absolutely. Because if
0: you don't try, you know, if you don't try, then you can just sit there in paralysis. Like That's what we've been talking about, where I think even even Georgia May, it's one step beyond just a vision board and one step beyond um, a solo bucket list. She achieves the shared bucket list vibe or like an actualization because by sitting down and pasting that stuff, I mean, she has the brochure for the hotel. She has like different things that Emerald has done. It's not just like, oh, this is cool and I want to emulate it in other ways. If you have the brochure for a hotel, like you're locked in. That is a goal that you're setting for yourself. So I think that's what I thought was really, really potent in the way that she was approaching things is she was like, I know... What I want it was just she needed the catalyst to go after it.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think so many people do know what they want and whether or not they feel comfortable enough to even write it down or say it out loud, they know and it's in them. And that's something else that's really beautiful about this movie is everybody that she comes into contact with, even the fucking main antagonist of the film who's so unlikable. Mm -hmm. she inspires them to reevaluate their priorities and think about what it is that they really want. Like, Mm -hmm. every single single fucking character.
0: And honestly, guys, it doesn't get corny or cringe. Like, it's like, she is a well-written character, and they do a very, very good job with this film. This is reminding me of
1: a thing that I started doing this year. I have always just been afraid of doing things that are challenging, and this year I decided to make spontaneous decisions about long-term things Mm -hmm. or about permanent things. And I think that speaks to how an anxiety about endings is an anxiety about beginnings is an anxiety about endings. Like, if they're really that interconnected, then no wonder so many people just don't do anything at all. Can I tell
0: you something really cool about the brain? So when you make a spontaneous decision about something long-term, oftentimes you are using your best reasoning capability... Because your orbitofrontal cortex is where a lot of these decisions happen. And that is your snap judgment center. And there's a lot of studies that suggest that the best way to go about making a, like a decision is you do your snap judgment. You sleep on it. And then you wake up. And the first thing that comes to mind is what you do. And that uses the orbitofrontal cortex. By waiting a little bit of period of time, you're able to activate like the slower cognitive pathways in your brain. But most of the time, those two decisions are the same. Wow. That just made
1: me feel so much better about all of my decisions that I've made.
0: Right. And I mean, in in your case, like in your personal life, obviously they've paid off in a lot of ways. And I think there is so much fear in this world. And there is so many ways you can let fear rule your life. But when you have so much to be enamored with, with everything around you, you know, it is a really, really good time to let go of that fear. Because things can be so much harder. There's there's so many fears that you can't let go of. So if there oh, are yeah. fears that you can let go of, let go of them when you're able to.
1: Yeah, you're never going to be free of fear or anxiety. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you'll never be completely okay with every impending ending.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's, there's some small ones that you can start to just pair away. Like a bonsai tree or pruning. I love that.
2: Um, In addition to calling this movie "End Everybody Clapped, we also called this Reverse Fleabag. Yes. Because she has these very special asides with God throughout this film, Mm -hmm. where she'll be asking, like, why me? Or, you know, like, you're just not going to make this easy for me. Or, like, you're going to make my luck run out. Or, like, you're going to give me luck here at the end, aren't you? She, she often like looks up or looks over her shoulder, not into the camera, and speaks out loud. And everyone can hear her do this. To God. She also, at the beginning of the movie, is singing in her church choir. She sings in a Baptist church. And she's called out, like she's singled out at their rehearsal for not singing with her full voice. I think that's there to sort of imply this idea that if we were cognizant of the fact that our death is imminent, then we would always sing with our full voice. We would always go hard. We would always go for it if we knew what was coming. Mm-hmm. Because then, you know, later in the movie, when she has gotten the news and she's grieving her own death, she's at her rehearsal. Or I think it's actually like at a church service. Yeah. And in the middle of one of the songs she you know she starts like lord why, why me? me lord why me, lord, why why me? me? and they, they i never
0: like, slept around like my sister did yeah <laughs> i was like
1: okay your sister caught astray there <laughs> yeah <laughs> but no that is a really good point that she starts comparing herself to other people she's like well they did all these things you know and and why
2: mm-hmm. didn't i get to live which is good a very stages
0: of grief as well
2: yeah, yeah. i mean it's, yeah. A, it's a very biblical thing to do like well, yeah why me is a very biblical question um but in watching that scene I was reminded of the documentary Amazing Grace. Do you guys know about it? Mm-mm. It is a movie of a live recording of the album by Aretha Franklin, Amazing Grace. She recorded it in 1972 at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. She sings two nights. So there's it's two different nights of performances spliced together. She is singing her ass off like it's it is divine in seeing this movie i feel like i finally understood how gospel music was a way to commune with god Mm
3: -hmm.
2: because she's she's sweating buckets like they're all holding each other up like physically they're all like fainting and yelling and exclaiming and fanning and like it's not necessarily the words that she's singing but it is the way that she's singing them, the way she's achieving this perfection, this emotion that i kind of realized like in the making of this music, in the making of this art she's making the meaning of her life and the, the meaning of the lives of those around her in that moment and i was like oh that's god right. <laughs> like yeah that and was the first time in my adult life that i kind of understood what god might mean practically in my life if you
1: give meaning to something in your life you create something that can end and how glorious is it to have faith in a life that is full of many endings
0: it just makes me think of like in yoga where they talk about like opening up through or shining through heart center. And I think in gospel singing that's what's something that's always come to mind for me is like to be opening yourself up
3: to mm-hmm. become a
0: vessel Absolutely. for receiving from God. Um by like projecting out your voice in a way you're emptying out your emotion and your feeling and channeling it
2: to God and you're receiving back. That's it. Like she's giving her everything. Yeah. She's exhausting herself.
0: I wrote a poem about this once. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, It's uh, it was in my senior thesis in undergrad. And
2: I titled it the
0: 24-7 Divine Landline. Because I feel like that's how I conceive of prayer, especially. Where it's like, I can just pick up that phone anytime. And I know that I will be heard. And I think that's something that's like always been very, very special to me. Is you can talk as much as you want and you know that you will be heard. And you don't necessarily get a verbal response back, but there is the feeling. There's the feeling, the presence, the knowledge, um, what I call in some other poetry, the hand at your back.
2: So. Yeah, she sings, uh, you will never walk alone.
0: You will never walk alone. What does your godfather have on his um, medallion that you told me? I
2: am always with you.
0: I am always with you. Do not fear and do not grieve.
2: It's pretty special. like. Yeah. I yeah there's there's so many different ways to think about the idea of a god but if you think about it as like the reason for being or the, the meaning of life or the meaning of existence or how we make meaning out of our life and our death it's so fitting that she's in a gospel choir in this movie absolutely yeah. absolutely it's, and it's such a perfect place to start because it establishes her character right away
0: it shows how people treat her how she is used to being treated and then it is such a big change by the end of the movie and then to be able to use that as a cathartic place is also really really special Mm -hmm. so i don't know it just it all comes back to god in the end (laughs) (laughs) not to sound like my mother
2: (laughs) yeah but yeah
0: no i got emotional i got emotional
2: i love i love that movie everybody should watch it yes well both movies amazing grace and the last holiday
1: yeah, instead of going to see Saltburn and in instead theaters, of going to
0: see that dangled Saltburn, um, you should watch The Last Holiday, mm-hmm. and maybe you should watch Priscilla. It depends on the vibe that you are seeking. out. Yeah. <laughs> how coquette are you? Is the
2: question? <laughs> yes.
0: Do you own a pair of Mary Janes? Oh.
1: the year is coming to an end do you guys do new year's resolutions
0: not formally no i've always really associated them with like asshole people at the gym that are like god i can't wait for february because all these resolution people will be gone <laughs> and honestly yeah like for me as a child it always held like a lot of association with weight so yeah i'm not really the biggest fan but i do love the idea of taking the time to give yourself a reset and set goals. I think those are always, always going to be super important.
2: Yeah, I like reserving time for intention setting.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Did you guys have a resolution this year at all? Oh, like for 2023? Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> I was going to say
0: by the time, like by the time I get to the end of the year, I don't really remember what my resolutions were. This was the first year that
1: I had like a solid one, and I actually did it. Yeah, and my resolution was. To at least meet a new person every month, and if I don't meet a new person every month, to become closer with someone every month, and that has like really paid off for me. I feel so much better as like a social human animal than I ever have.
2: That's a great intention. Thank you. That's a great intention.
1: And then this year, I'm being a little bit Catholic about it. (laughs) I (laughs) I was like, I'm not gonna have a resolution, I'm going to take a vow. Oh yes. Because hot. In this I was thinking about oral traditions and I was like, okay, well a vow is it's giving power to your spoken words. Yeah. Which I think is cool. So um, I was thinking about taking a vow of chastity because I think that's kind of dope. It is done. It's very monastic.
2: For 365 days? Yeah. <laughs> Inspir- inspired
1: by the film, <laughs> which, <laughs> which made me asexual.
2: The Polish film. Uh,
1: but yeah, I was thinking about taking some sort of vow. I don't know. I think it'd be a fun challenge to my relationship with myself. That's very priestly of you. It it is, is there
2: three vows? You'd be a, a good priest. I think Sorry. it's chastity, poverty, and obedience. Yes. Okay.
1: Because I saw... If you apply to work in some Catholic institutions, they will ask if you've taken a vow of poverty, because it impacts how they pay you.
2: Damn!
1: So they're like, we hope you took a vow That's of poverty. That's kind of a setup. I know. Yeah, wow. <laughs>
2: and you can't lie. <laughs> okay, this yeah. is that so would be funny, disobedient. But I did have a, a priest with a vanity plate at my elementary school. What did it say? It said Father Sean. Well, yeah. Oh my god, the Irish Catholics. Oh, I hated him. (laughs) Oh, Um, Sean. Yeah, a little ironic if you ask me. Mm -hmm. But, you know. You're not my dad. I shall not judge my neighbor. A humble plate. Um, It's really ugly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good resolution. I did kind of talk about earlier, like, I do really want to make some headway on my bucket list. And I think it would be fun to start by doing a monthly, like, cooking from a cookbook. And there's this thing that I've seen on TikTok, not to give credence to those people,
2: but. <laughs> I'm a
0: gas. <laughs> I'm a gas. Um, there's a thing I've seen on TikTok that I think is really beautiful. Um, and it's just a little harder to do in my apartment the way it's set up, but I really want to host more dinner parties. I think it yes. would be fun to do like a yeah. monthly rotating one with some friends and have them bring a dish that they're making. And I've seen a lot of people do it with cookbooks where they're like, everyone's cooking through a different cookbook or maybe the same cookbook and you put together like a several course meal that way i like that as an antidote to your previous conceptions of new
1: year's
2: resolutions
0: yeah i know how ironic but how special Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. yeah yeah. to feast yeah i mean as far as intentions for the next year like i just moved to a major u.s city so i really want to like have grace with myself
3: yeah
2: as i figure out how to live my life there in a completely new way i think that i would like to get more poems published Mm -hmm. and i would like to write one essay i think that's a completely (gasps) yes reasonable goal we'll see if it happens
0: yeah a year is a great amount of time for an essay yeah it will and you don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah, you... I'll be there on December 31st, 2024.
1: <laughs> You're going to have student syndrome when I'm done with you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I've already got it, so. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I also get, like, God, I have the weirdest feeling on New Year's every single year.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh,
2: so existential. Yeah. Do you guys feel like that about the holiday?
0: I'm not a big fan of New Year's. I don't know. I'm not kissing anybody, so. Same. Well, I'll not- be taking my vow of chastity. <laughs> <laughs> and that includes kissing. No, I'm just wait, kidding. Wait, anybody... Does a vow of chastity
2: mean that you can't kiss your friends on your ears? I love kissing as many people as possible. On Only yours. if it's a chaste kiss. A chaste kiss. Oh, I love a chaste kiss. <laughs> I care. love it's, a chaste kiss. A chaste kiss is the sauciest. <laughs> a chaste kiss,
0: kiss with the bestie. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think those, you know, it's necessarily chaste, so it's not oh. breaking the violation. It's not violating your vow of chastity. do you guys feel the tension that just simmered
1: (laughs) I don't like New Year's New Year's Eve I don't find it particularly thrilling I don't really like drinking
0: it's Um, a white ass holiday I'll say that yeah,
2: I much prefer like a Chinese New It's a years. it's a blonde mm. white ass
0: holiday to They're, be like New Year's
2: Eve. No. It, no, it's it's like very like get glam and then go freeze your ass off.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which
2: is such a white thing to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Not not the Nordic people. The Nordic folk. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what I meant by it's a blonde ass person thing to do.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I've had some really bad New Year's. I'm sorry. It's Really bad New Year's. New Year's <laughs> is a holiday honestly uh, molly versus holiday <laughs> for real
0: i love
1: to make it to generate a new fucked up anniversary <laughs> may this be the ending of your bad new year's yeah celebrations
0: Thank we've you. broken a few curses this year oh yeah so let's break some more
1: that's so true i would love to hear from our listeners if they have any particular resolutions they're making because i'm really competitive so maybe i could be better at your resolution <laughs> than, than you right. are <laughs> yeah that
2: would be a good like way to trick myself into actually following through if i could beat one of you yeah and
0: if there's anything cool that you guys are up to like i'm happy to add another resolution to my list if you want to join my cook along hit me up and yeah. we'll do a little pods grand feast i'll make a chalice you guys can all drink out of the chalice a chalice yeah. oh my
1: god you're yeah. So
0: Catholic. <laughs> yeah, we're getting Catholic in 2024. That's what the pod is doing. <laughs> oh, that's pod, really the, not what's
1: happening. Nationally. The pod has
0: always been Catholic. Actually, yeah. We're, we, we're getting Islamic.
2: Yeah, Molly and I are reading the Quran. <laughs> it's so. true. The Quran goes so hard. Beautiful, I mean, Beautiful text. Talk about, I'm always with you. I'm always with you.
0: Yeah, the Quran is really beautiful. There is a verse from the chapter titled Jonah that I was sharing with Molly and Gabe the other day. And it is... Let me find it. Wait, can you pull up your contact
2: photo for me? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I Yeah, Aru sent this to me, and it was just so well-suited to our divine friendship that I made it her profile photo. When Previously, it was the girl on the cover of... My year of rest and relaxation. Talk about a good ending. Ooh, yeah, good ending.
0: I think it's the friends of Allah shall have no fear, nor shall they grieve.
2: Listen, the friends of Allah shall have no fear, nor shall they grieve. I forgot to
0: listen. That's very, <laughs> that's very Allah-korb. Listen. <laughs> okay, like, listen,
2: listen,
0: <laughs> listen. Are you listening? <laughs> wait, you so that's
2: sweet. that's you, Eunice, Eunice is how you would say it in Arabic. Eunice. Eunice, that's also one of my favorite, um, old woman names. Oh, yeah, really like Eunice. Eunice. Yeah, I think maybe part of reading
1: the Cron for me is an extension of this year's resolution of getting to know people better because mm-hmm. it's a way for me to get closer to you. Rich. I love
0: it. I love um, it.
1: But yeah, please reach out to us at our email.
0: thenavelgazepod at com, or, or on Instagram at thenavelgaze. Thank you. I'll never fucking run that stuff. <laughs> That's why I'm here.
1: Um... <laughs> But yeah, I hope you have a lovely rest
2: of your year, gazers.
0: Yes. Happy 2023. And we hope that you have a beautiful 2024 and we'll keep making podcasts for you in that year.
2: May God bless you and keep you. Peace be with you. <laughs> what is the thing
0: that these, that little tiny Tim says or whatever at the end of Christmas Yeah. Everyone. <laughs> God bless <laughs> us all. Everyone. <laughs> God bless
3: <laughs> us all. <laughs> okay, bye. 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 bye.